You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network, powered by Interstate Batteries. From your truck to your trail camera, Interstate Batteries has you covered. Visit your local Interstate Battery store today or online at interstatebatteries.com. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable. Welcome to the Land and Legacy Podcast. We're your hosts, Adam Keith and Matt Dye. This is your number one resource for all things land. If you're interested in conservation, habitat management, hunting strategy, and rural real estate, this is the podcast for you. All right, fellas and, and ladies, this is the Land and Legacy Podcast here. I'm Adam. Um, I'm doing it uh, without compadre Matt this week. Uh, he's over on the other podcast with, with uh, Frank Longcarriage talking continuing series number two for us on the wild turkey um the wild turkey series next week we've got dr michael chamberlain coming on uh if everything plays out scheduling wise so you guys don't want to miss that one we're very excited to have that uh have mike back on the podcast um but part two or i guess uh podcast number two this week it's myself and once again return return you might as well call him co-host now but uh chainsaw chad has joined us once again chad thanks for jumping on how's it going yeah um we got a a, almost um as we jump into this podcast um i feel a little bit like i i don't want to say that we houdinied everyone but we didn't necessarily unlike well not really unlike because you know, with with uh, some of the background that I've got, yeah, I have with other uh, working on other shows throughout the years and kind of being in and around the hunting industry a good amount, it's nothing out of the ordinary for a landowner to not really talk about the giant that they're hunting. That's just part of it. Um, but we haven't talked about him for some time, and we gave just felt like too many nuggets um early on and ended up seeing it go blow up right in our face and we were like okay we're done with that uh when it, shut when it, it down to, every time we showed up in public it seemed like somebody would ask us about him yes so this week's podcast is going to be about donuts the five and a half year old buck that exploded on the family farm and I and in case you guys didn't know, Chad and I purchased uh, the farm next to that you've heard us talk about a lot. Um, we purchased that farm, so we we expanded the family farm, and so the home place has has officially gotten bigger, and we are going neck deep into habitat management now that we're the sole owners and we've got some things to really do that we've not been able to do in years past so things are really going to change very significantly in the coming future now that's all exciting but what's exciting is the story of donuts and what this buck did over the course of three years of following him and how a ordinary run-of-the-mill buck did something that few bucks do in the Ozarks and in especially in southern Missouri. And so the story of donuts, if you haven't there's a video on YouTube um that that highlights the the encounter that Chad and I had with him, one of the encounters we had with him. We haven't even talked about the other ones. 
Um, and we'll share <laughs> all of that in this podcast. So the story of a 192 Ozark Mountain Buck coming at you right now. Now, before we jump in, we do want to shout out um, to Vortex Optics for helping support this podcast and helping us come back each and every week. So if you guys are getting ready for turkey season, getting ready for shed season, um, of course, optics are a must. <laughs> if you even want to nerd out with me, join me in the woods come May, and f- and we're planting food plots and summer tanagers are flying around. We want to get a good look at them. Have you a nice set of binoculars and Vortex Optics, great price, great product, but an even better warranty. So check them out at vortexoptics.com. All right, Chad. Um, so, uh, you know, when we talked about, when you were on here and we were talking about buying the farm, it's it's very hard to even pack it into a 30-minute or an hour-long podcast of just how crummy the family farm was when we were growing up. I mean, it is no there. That we can't even express how it's, how awful the deer hunting was. And that's what I think. For me, I mean, thinking about it, it's it's hard to explain it. It's hard to explain and have people grasp just how sorry that <laughs> the hunting was in that area. Yeah, I mean, there was times where the second day of gun season, we would do deer drives just to see deer, and we would still see only a handful of deer. And, um, our farm was almost predominantly grazed, even in the timber, the cows had, had the ability to get in the timber. And so there was, there, there's still limited cover on the family farm, um, because of the years of overgrazing. And now we're, we're, we're soon to change that. We've got four and a half miles of electric fence we're getting ready to build. So, uh, there's going to be some stuff changing hardcore. We've, we've cut TSI, but. We're also at the stage where our timber is, our tools are limited because our timber is close to needing a lot. Yeah, and we're not going to so go cut can, a bunch of trees that are a few years away from being logged just for the sake of the deer. I'm sorry, but I got other ways to throw my money away. Yeah. So <laughs> we're trying to manage profitable land. Yeah, we are a working farm. Like, we're we're trying to man manage for timber value. We're trying to manage for cattle income, and we're trying to manage for wildlife habitat. And all three can be done, but you have to kind of walk a tight rope. That's what our business does. We help landowners. Uh, you know, if they're a landowner that's just looking for great habitat, fun, great. We we don't have as nearly as many hurdles. But if you're looking to have income, trying to be a working farm. That is something we specialize in, in helping landowners find what that may be um, and then finding a way to make it work um, and, and still providing better habitat than the surrounding area so you have more deer on your farm. And so our farm is, is very unique, and I think a lot of people uh, over the years, yeah, I, one thing that really kind of bugs me is when somebody plays that whole must-be-nice card to me. Uh, and it, it, <laughs> at this point in my career, it's really kind of just annoying um, because it's like, uh, you know, you don't know how bad it was. And unlike other people, I never have the intent in leaving and moving where it's better. I'm just going to fix what's here. Um, you're not going to see me pack my bags and move somewhere where it's already phenomenal and hunt there for the years and say, yep, this is awesome. Now, there's nothing really wrong with that, but it's a lot it's better for my business to, and I guess my pride to say, we're changing it right here at home. Like we figured this out and we're doing it right here. And, uh, you know, when I was a kid, uh, growing up, dad had that mounted buck, um, that realistically is a one, didn't you score it one time? I I can't And I think it's like, it's an eight pointer. And I remember you and I thought it was such a giant buck when we were growing up. And looking back, it's like it's not even over 115, I don't think. Um, very short time. It's a nice deer. It's a nice buck. Um, but it's just, you know, nothing of what the the ground should have. Um, and so, you know, I remember thinking that's that's kind of the, you know, I want to shoot a buck like Dad's. And, and then going on and, and aging and seeing that <laughs> there are people killing giants across the country is a little bit disheartening to go, oh, man, 
it really is terrible around here. And I think guys that could probably relate really well are people up in Pennsylvania, um, Michigan, um, guys like that that have hunted in areas that are that are, are really tough, high deer pressure or high high hunting pressure. Um, th- those are all things that we've dealt with and um, continue to deal with and are really, I, mean, I guess, kind of cutting our teeth uh, growing up on, on the fact of high hunting pressure, low quality habitat, and trying to maximize your deer herd and, uh, and show their, show more potential. And I think that's where, um, you know, I think a lot of people probably, because they see that we're in Missouri, they automatically probably think of giant deer, Missouri monarch, the history with that buck, and just that there are hunting shows out of Missouri. Um, but once again, we're only, uh, the family farms, a couple hundred acres. And we got a lot of landowners around us. And so it, we're kind of in that, I guess, reality and, and probably a, a very relatable boat of going, oh man, these guys are, uh, they're dealing with a lot of the same stuff I'm dealing with. And well, it wasn't that long ago that I heard 120 shots by 8 o'clock on the opening morning in gun season. Yeah. And where the, I, mean, <clears throat> I, I guess, sun up was about, what, 530 at that point? So somewhere in there, or 6 o'clock. Yeah. So I a couple hours, two, three hours. Winter, so. Yeah. And you heard 120 shots by 8 o'clock on opening morning. That's just, and, and to think about it, too, our farm is, is a plateauish. Uh, I mean, most of our our family farm is a plateau, but there's a lot of steep ravines and big valleys around. So there's a lot of, it's not like somebody shoots and we hear it for miles around. Like uh, most of those shots are within a few, uh, I'd say within a few miles and 120 shots by eight o'clock. That's, that's a pretty good amount of pressure that's going on in the deer herd. And even if half of those deer get killed, 60 deer is a good amount of deer getting killed around the farm. Yeah. Well, and so, you, think, you think back to, you know, we kind of had a taste of, of that. I was thinking of this the other day. We kind of had a taste of what was possible. Um, the year that it was probably six or seven years ago, we had a neighbor plant an alfalfa field in the bottom. Oh, yeah. And all of a sudden we had multiple, like three and a half year old deer around something we weren't used to yeah and it was because all of a sudden there was a flush of food because at that time this the place that we bought was essentially all closed canopy timber yep food was very very limited except for when acorns fell yes yep and all of a sudden there was an ample food supply through the summer and it was like whoa where did these where did these deer come from yep and boy did that last two years yeah, and that year would have been, uh, I believe that was 13 and 14, if I remember right. They didn't end up maintaining it. And then the, would it be the age class? The age class before donuts, when donuts would have been two and a half, we didn't have a deer on 900 acres that was over two and a half. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that's and, and so that's that's counting people. the family farm, the farm we bought, and the farm we lease, uh, about a 900-acre unit that had zero bucks over four and a half. I mean, that's 900 acres, mostly timbered, and, one, and, and not a single buck over four and a half. Because the year that... So that, that year would have been, been what half. year would have that been? I can't remember. Because 2020 back. was, so 2020, 2019, 2018, 2017 then. That would have been 2017. We didn't have a deer over four and a half. Is that right? Or was it 2016? It was 16 or 17. 2016. If it was five yeah. and a half last year, I can't remember. Yeah. It's too much math this late at night. Yeah, 27. But, uh, I think it was 2016. We didn't have a single deer that was over. The, the year that the the age class that would have been three and a half that year, when they were two and a half, we had ten two and a half year old bucks killed within a mile of the farm. Yeah. 
just for <laughs> a reference point. How many did how... we kill on our farm that were two and a half? Zero. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that that's where it's like, oh, it's, you know, and but our culture, the hunting heritage and the hunting culture in the Ozarks isn't about big deer. It's about yeah. just getting out, buying a buck and doe tag, and going out and shooting whatever you can to fill your tags. And, you know, for us, you know, Matt mentioned it on the podcast. I think we called it So You Want to Be a Land Manager. Uh, I was like, if you want to do what I'm doing, are you willing to do what I did? And I think about that a lot with guys that are in that are well known for harvesting big deer. Uh, like our client, Greg Glessinger, like Lee Likoski, like Mark Dury, guys who have harvested big deer pretty consistently over the course of the years, they're doing things that I think a lot of us would not be willing to do. Pass that giant buck, that 150 that's three and a half, or that 160 that really made a huge jump from three to four, and you say, ooh, he might be one that pushes 200 next year at five and a half. And... You know, to pass a deer that's, for, for a lot of us, and including ourselves, we're not that far removed from it, so I don't want anybody to think that we're trying to put our nose in the air and say that we're doing things like they're doing in Iowa. That's not what we're saying at all, but what we are saying far is that, that, you know, we shot, I shoot the deer I shot this year very well, could have been three and a half, but um, I don't, I don't know, I leaned, I, I'm looking at, I, I'm looking at the, uh, <laughs> at the, at the teeth and I'm going, yeah you know he might actually have been four and a half um either way he's gone now um just the memories of the rack hanging on the wall and the meat in the freezer but um there we're not that far removed from three and a half that's a target we're shooting three and a half year olds but then now you step up and say okay well we're shooting four and a halfs only okay well you you there's not nearly as many four and a half out there in the woods in the fall as there are three and a half year olds so you're hunting a smaller a smaller group of bucks, number-wise. And then if you say I'm targeting five and a half, like a lot of those guys do in southern Iowa or Iowa in general, uh, that's a that's a very difficult game to get into because it's a small pool. There's not that many five-and-a-half-year-old bucks running around out there. But when you do get one, there's a better chance that that one's going to be a giant, especially if you're in Iowa. And But here's the thing. How many states in the country, how many places do you know of where guys are targeting specifically five-and-a-half-year-old bucks? I don't see it that often. I don't hear it that often. It seems like it really follows that southern Iowa, some, some places in Illinois, uh, some places in Kansas, and those people kill giants. So... For me, and what we've kind of talked about with with now the 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 purchasing of this neighboring property, we feel like we have a decent amount of ground now. It's still not comparable to some of the chunks that you see in southern Iowa where these guys are killing the giants, but it's still a decent amount of ground, especially for the Ozarks. And I feel like with our habitat practices that we're doing, our habitat restoration, the amount of cover we're putting on, the amount of food we're putting on from the native vantage point we're going to lose deer they're of course going to go to the neighbor but a lot of deer are going to call it home and stay there and so if we have the chance i mean why not us you know that's the question uh i, I actually had that that's that's part of my notes and in, in my wallet actually i carry a uh a lot of people i'm not even sure my wife knows this story but i carry a uh, a little note affirmation note in my wallet occasionally i'll pull it out and it basically says you know it gives a few bible verses it says most important things something like tell people about jesus and then at the bottom it says why not me as in if somebody's going to do something why not be me and so i look at it with this farm and say well why not us let's try the iowa let's try the iowa management point of saying you know what let's try to target just five and a half year old bucks you know, well, we're not we're not going to hold dad to those standards and we're not going to hold our guests to those standards, but for us we have the opportunity like, to kind of show you know, this farm is going to be pretty special. And it's not like dry years or anything new to us. No. When when, when you do when we describe 
the past. We had we had decent standards for ourselves for years on this, trying to build it up. So not, I mean, we've said long ago, not killing a buck is no problem for us. <laughs> yeah, it's, no doubt. It not killing me. Not killing a turkey is a little different. But not killing a buck <laughs> is really not that big of a deal because we did that we'll most go, of our life. I mean, we went through a long stretch where if we were going to kill a buck, we were going to kill it on public land or somewhere else. Yeah. It's like, yeah, I'm not going to kill anything there. I remember, conver- I remember a conversation with one of my old bosses when he harvested his buck and then it was like, all right, you know, we're going to let my farm rest, go and hunt. And I'm like, okay, cool. And he, he would ask me where I was going, and I'm like, I don't know. We're probably going to go find some public ground. And he's like, why aren't you hunting your farm? I'm like, because there's nothing there. There's no bucks. There's nothing I want to shoot. I can go shoot a dinker if I want, but there's nothing that I want to be like, yay, look at this buck. And I, I like the challenge of the public ground at that point. And I remember he was like, well, you got food plots on it. And I'm like, yeah, but they're not there. And it should have triggered so so far back then and been like, yeah, I planted food plots since since I was 11 years old. I mean, that was 22 years ago. <laughs> it was not yeah. until, I mean, and this is, a, this is something, too, that drives me nuts, and it's coming up in another podcast. I just haven't gotten all the way through my notes yet to build it. Um, and for you listeners out there that are going to try to take that or other guys and say, I'm going to make that podcast now that good luck. Um, that, that, that's 22 years, 22 years of food plotting. And we didn't have huntable good deer until the last four, five. And they, and they, they weren't 20 year old bucks. No. And, and so, <laughs> but what happened in the last, last six years, timber management, cover management, habitat restoration, if you look at the, the the world of hunting right now and over the last 20, let's just say 22 years, it's been food plots, it's been minerals, it's been supplemental feeders, it's been um, a little bit of hinge cutting lately, and it, it's product, 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 non-native, non-native, non-native. And there's nothing wrong with food plots. I mean, shoot, we work with Stratton Seed Company. Like, I love food plots, but I'm not going to sit here and tell you that that's going to change. You need to plant more food plots. It's like, well, I want bigger deer. Plant more food plots. No, that's not how this works. That That's just like trying to buy a championship in sports. Some people do it, but it's going to take a pile of money to do it, and even then it's not a guarantee. And so for us, it was all about, you know, let's let's try to do this with the least amount of money and just figure this out. And that's when we started cutting trees. We started removing invasives. We started this stuff, and it was like all of a sudden – a few deer show up, um, and I was like, huh, this is cool. You know, uh, we, we can mention Doc, who was a buck that we hunted. I hunted back in 2015. Yeah, I can't remember. I think it was 2015. And, uh, oh, man, that one kicks me because he's 100 and – what did he end up scoring? It right may have been 2016. It was, it was yeah, the 2016. year after – because he just showed up. Yeah. It was the year after we had no bucks over two and a half. All of a sudden this. Yeah. And and lo and behold, he was a three and a half year old buck. When you look at the teeth, that, that deer was three and a half. But he was right in the upper 40s, I believe. Um, yeah. And I mean, that, as a three and a half year old. A three and a half year old in the upper 40s. That one should have triggered. That one kind of did trigger with us of going, you know. I and, and I just praise Dr. Craig Harper for his research on the comparisons of, of you know the crop overlay map where people will say, okay, here's all the here's soybean production in the U.S. based on counties. Here's Boone and Crockett bucks based on counties, and say, well, Boone and Crockett bucks are associated with soybeans. Well, it's it's an easy thing to say because the maps do line up well. But then you look at, um, you know, Dr. Craig Harper's research, and I'm not sure he's published this yet, and I talked to him last year about it. He said, I really need to get that published. But um, it's it's basically, it's about land use and the fact that there's more open, 
open, uh, there's not as much a dense forest. They're growing soybeans. There's lots of weeds. It's, it's a lot different land use in those. And so they pulled plant tissue analysis from those areas and then poor ground, and they were about the same um, to where basically the native vegetation didn't have any more nutrients in the fertile ground of s- s- Iowa or Illinois as it did in Arkansas or Louisiana or Missouri. Um, and so that research combined with what we've seen on our own farm is going, okay, it's because there's no food. It's because there's no cover. They can't get old. And even if they do get old, they don't have a lot of nutrients. And the genetics are just the same as they are in northern Missouri because they stock the deer in northern Missouri with southern Missouri deer. So, yeah. And that's what you, you think back to, like, Doc. That was the start of when we started to kick up a notch on our chainsaw work. Yeah. I mean, that was when we and passing, started And really, passing young bucks. Yeah. Which yeah. we've been doing that for a little while on the farm. Yeah. And But that was around the time we really kicked it up a notch on the TSI work. For sure. And burning. Yeah. And I think that would be a reminder for guys who are going, I'm just going to, you know, the number one thing I can do on my farm is just don't shoot young bucks. Well, that's true, but you also need cover so you do ensure that those young bucks stay on you during the heaviest hunting pressure so they don't go on to the neighbor and get shot. And for us, it was kind of we stopped shooting them as young bucks, but they were still getting killed in the neighborhood. But then when we started doing cover and chainsawing work, it seemed like more and more deer were hanging around. And so, like... I shot a buck on a previous, uh, a previous, what year was that? 2016. Um, yeah, yeah, 2016. I shot a buck called Sticker Eight, who was a 138, three and a half year old buck. Um, I don't regret that for a second. That was beautiful footage that Matt laid down back in the back in the day, and um, I mean a three and a half year old buck that was 138. And and we'll circle back to donuts here in a second because the story of him, we have sheds for three years of him, and he doesn't even come close to 138 as a three-and-a-half-year-old buck. He's way down the charts. And so, um, yeah, I, I mean, uh, I shot sticker eight, 138, three-and-a-half-year-old, and then Doc was in the upper 40s as a three-and-a-half-year-old. Um, and, and what we believe happened to that deer, we think Chad may not be ready to accept this, but I believe Chad wounded him during rifle season and our neighbor found him, uh, during the winter months and kind of a funny story. He gave the antlers away to somebody to make what knife handles. Uh, he, uh, yeah, I guess something so. like I that. Know, he just make stuff out of them. And so like, we found that out, I think from our grandma and we're like, call him you got to get a hold of him that's the buck and we did and you went and found the deer or went and met up with the guy who was going to get ready to carve him up and make knife handles and traded him some shed antlers and he and and got the deer head back and so uh that was uh and then we found it we're like yep that's sure enough him that's doc uh and then we had another deer we called louie um who was a nice wide 10 pointer who we thought was an absolute monster when he showed up and then when we found the shed, um, <laughs> I look at that shed because it's part of a decorative piece in my home right now, and it's not but a 145-inch 10-pointer. He's not that massive. He's not uh, He's not nearly – when we saw the deer, when he showed up on camera, I thought he was a Boone and Crockett buck. And now I look at him like, he's not that big. He's, he's a good deer, but he's not huge. Um, and so – you know, we're saying all that to kind of give the history of of the, the deer in the neighborhood and go, you know, it's just been poor. It's been poor our whole life. Um, it's been very neglected, and it's going to take a lot of work to get it back. And we've started that, and we're already seeing massive changes in the deer herd. We've got a couple really nice bucks coming up um, that, that seem to be like they're going to be just really nice bucks. Nothing special. But I don't expect special with the little change that we've made in the overall habitat. I think no. when people think that Matt and I were consultants, we help people across the country, Chad works for the U.S. Forest Service, 
that we should have this really pristine farm. We don't. We've had very little time over the course of the last 10 years to really improve it. I, I worked a previous job that didn't offer much freedom to, to get away and go run the chainsaw uh, and do all that stuff. And then when I when we started Lana Legacy, we were busy building a business and trying not to go broke and, and starve. And, and then when we did do well for ourselves, um, we still didn't own the farm, so it wasn't like we could go do some radical stuff. And then at the same time, then I had kids, and time has just been very limited. I live an hour and ten minutes from this farm. Chad but. lives in Arkansas and works in this farm. Or, and so trying to work on this farm has been pretty difficult. What, what we have done on the farm, though, has given us a glimmer, a, a glimpse into what the possibilities are. That's right. And that's where, like, like a lot of the stuff that we've done and experimented with, we've already seen, we've seen the benefits throughout the years, little benefits. And it's one that then, if you're ready to get into Doc and what we, what we attribute a lot of his success, his jumps to, but. You like, mean donuts. Yeah, you said doc. Yeah, yeah. But if you're ready to get into donuts, yeah, what we attribute a lot of his jumps to. Yep, is we finally had the opportunity to get a logging operation started. That's right. That's right. So donuts first came on our radar in 2017. And he was, yeah, 2017, because uh, 2017, three and a half, 2018 was four and a half, 2019, he was five and a half, and then 2020 was MIA. Uh, And we'll share all that story. So at 2017, he showed up. He went by Flair at that time. He went by the name Flair because his brow times kind of flared out and so we called him flare and he was a nice eight pointer and we would have shot the deer at three and a half as an eight pointer and said he's a nice eight pointer and then we'd have walked up to him and been like yeah he's a little smaller than he looked on trail camera because finding now, keep in mind, this deer has been relatively symmetrical over the course of, of his life. And when you found a shed in February or March the next spring, Chad, it was like, hey, that's Flair. That's cool. We found Flair. He's down in the, the same the bottom coolest, bottom that he spent the summer in. The finding the shed was that the tines were stabbed in the dirt. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The like base it, was just sticking straight up in the air. Yep. I was like, hey, look at how I found this shed. Yep. Yep. And you probably have that. I, I, I would. We probably have that photo in our social media post because I think I posted it for Land and Legacy back when you found it. And so that's 2017. Now 2018 rolls around and a big deer shows up on camera in the middle of June. Now I'm going to backtrack. Middle of June, Flair shows up as a. We didn't know three and a half, four and a half. We didn't have a long history with him, so we were like, "Yeah, we'll see how he plays out this fall." And so we had pictures of him, and he showed up in June, and we called him Flair. Well, then 2018 rolls around, a bigger deer shows up on another part of the farm in June, middle of June, and we're like, "Whoa, who's this guy? This is a nice buck." And. But that, remember, we also had another eight point that was very similar. Yes, we haven't mentioned Big Show, but yep, yep. And so, um, over the course of of that spring, though, between twenty seventeen and twenty eighteen, we had food plots put in on um, on this farm that he had showed up on. And so, when we put in these three food plots that are anywhere from an acre to uh, almost acre and three quarter, we put these food plots in 
And that big deer showed up in June and then spent a decent amount in that food plot that summer. And we got to see his antlers grow, and he was a big mainframe eight-pointer. And we're like, man, this is awesome. We've got the big eight. And as he showed up, though, what? Was that in the midst of, when did the logging start? The logging started that summer. In okay. the, that that summer, because we we started in 2018 logging, and so that deer showed up, and as he showed up, we started logging on a separate part of the farm, but still in the same the same farm, but not where this deer was living, and so we had logging going on. We had a new food plot, and we had this giant eight pointer. So we thought giant for for our part of the world and it was all great we've got a good deer on camera and we were going to go after him and hopefully harvest him as a four and a half year old eight pointer one and and so we didn't have any encounters with him he was all over the farm we had pictures of him from the beginning of the season all the way through the end we had him uh on camera even after deer season and then he ended up uh, the in early April. I went, and it was like the first time I'd been to the farm all fall or all 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 uh, winter and early spring. I show up right before turkey season, and I found his shed in the food plot. Um, that basically found a shed in the food plot, and we're like, "Oh, that's him. That's a really nice shed." Okay, and so now and he, we have. He, he had changed his pattern that year to a – we kind of had a pattern on how he was moving. Yes. So that's part of how we tied in who it was when he showed back up the next year. Yes. All of a sudden, it was a big deer on the same pattern. And at this point, we had not correlated that he was Flair of the previous year. We had just knew that Flair had went missing. We weren't real sure. And it was like, okay, there's a big eight-pointer, showed up. He's a stud. That's who we're after him or this other buck called Big Show, that, side note, that deer vanished and we've never seen it again. It's been two years, so he's gone forever. Um, so now that's two years of a history with a buck. We had not tied it together as the same buck yet, but we do have the same side, left side shed, um, for two years in a row now. And now... Logging has been completed for the first go around um, with with rough weather, rough terrain. About two to three hundred acres got logged. Probably closer to two. Yeah, it wasn't about two hundred. Uh, to about two hundred acres got logged, or probably not even that. Actually, probably more like one fifty. Hundred fifty um, acres got logged, and we only have about six acres of food plots, maybe seven acres of food plots, where this buck, the big, tall eight-pointer, was living um, that fall, or where it seemed like he was living. We are getting him on camera in about 300 acres, and we only had about six acres of food plots. So it's not a very good ratio of food plots to total acreage. But about 150 acres has been logged, okay? Hopefully everybody's tracking that. There's a lot more food in the native variety as there is food plots. And now fast forward to the summer of 2019. A deer shows up that absolutely blows our minds. Well, the first time we had pictures early in the year when they were just starting to form of a big double brow tine deer that it was just, you could see it had double brow tines and then the main beams were forming. Yes. And we were like, Whoa, what deer is that? Had no clue. Just like, huh. And then he disappeared for a while. Yeah. We had all that logging. So it was really tough to really lock down where they're at. And, you know, we put cameras back in the same pattern areas where the, the other where he was at as an eight point and started picking up the bachelor group of bucks. Yep. And we're like, 
it was just like passing through and we'd get glimpses. It's like, boy, a couple of those deer have really good frames on them, but I just can't tell. And it was, he was completely formed up or close to it when we finally did get a great picture of him. Yep. And it was like, oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah. What deer is that? And so that was July, towards the later end of July, or mid-July actually, um, when he when we finally got a good picture and we were like, oh man, this who is this guy? And it took almost a month, I believe, to where we realized this is the big eight from the previous year, and he's put on a lot of tines and a G4 and more trash and gotten like he went and took a steroid shot cuz this thing is blown up and just uh, we spent the next several months just going almost like drooling on ourselves like I can't believe this deer has taken that big of a jump he's well, doing he's doing the same stuff he was doing the year before but one thing we did differently in our strategy. So we found I found that shed in the valley and I'm like, okay, you know, we had it. That was the first year we'd planted that valley in a food plot. And I said, uh, we so we picked up a redneck blind and we hauled it all the way around and we put that redneck blind down in the bottom and we said, Let's try to close up the windows, leave it pretty airtight. And, and and we'll try to put something really attractive in this bottom, and hopefully we can pull this deer into this bottom during daylight hours. And so that was what we did over the summer in 2019. And he ended up showing up, um, you know, in the summer, and we sat there and watched him kind of do the same stuff. And we were like, okay, last year he moved... We had pictures and this food plot, that food plot, that saddle, that saddle. This is kind of his range. You know, we could use Deer Lab and look at the heat map and say, this is this is the area he lives, or this is the area he's most active. So let's just make sure that we key in on that area. Ultimately, it was that slope, and by that slope, I mean a big, steep ridge, east-facing slope. Can't get to it from the bottom because you have to walk across the the bottom field, which is next to the food plot and very good chance that there's deer in that in the mornings. So you'd blow deer out that way and then try to come over the top. It's way too noisy. The wind swirls way too much. That's his sanctuary. Like we can't get into that. And that's a big area. And so when you're trying to like stay out of an area that big, he could, he could live and die on that slope. And we would never have a chance at killing him. All true, Chad. You agreeing with all yes. this? Yeah. Well, and and, and that's too, what's frustrating too. The, you brought up the steroids thing. Keep in mind, we haven't run, we haven't had minerals out for how long? Oh, it's been. I'm trying to remember the years. year that they banned it in the count, a couple counties away, and we said, you know. They're going to ultimately ban it in our county. Let's just go ahead and pull it. Start trying to figure these deer out without it. So when they do get pulled and everybody in our neighborhood has to stop doing it, we're already going to kind of know how to catch these deer on camera. And I, I'll say that that has been one of the most difficult things we've done is because we knew that we knew that we could go dump mineral on the ground and get that deer right up front. And it would have been just like, oh, man, look at all these big, beautiful pictures. But yep. we'd live with the risk that we were spreading CWD. And so we're like, no, let's just pull it. Now, we had, it's unfair for us to say, I, we try to be as transparent as possible, and I feel like we do a really, really good job of it. Based on my history in the outdoor world, it's the best job I've done in ever of being open to everybody. So we have run rice bran. We dump out a little pile of rice bran, which is about... Like a coffee can full. Yeah, a coffee can full of rice bran, which is a powdery substance that's really sweet smelling. It's a byproduct of the rice industry. 
I always say it's a lot like Rice Krispie Treats with the box ground up in it. It's got a sweet smell, but if you taste it on your own, it tastes like cardboard. For some reason, Donuts was a was a Rice brand cracky. I mean, that deer loved it. And so if we dumped out a coffee can here and there, he'd be all over it. But it's not something that would be like, if we put out Rice brand two days later, it's gone, and the deer are no longer coming to that spot. So it's unlike mineral. And it's unlike a big feeder or bait station. We typically didn't keep it in the same spot. We certainly didn't put it exactly in the same pile. But we did use it just to lure him into to, uh, camera range to where we could get some pictures of him. Um, and boy, did we get some pictures of him. Um, uh, we haven't, so I say all this. We've been, you know, unlike like where you pack up and you move to an area that nobody knows you and you're running to deer farm. You don't, you hang low and you don't run into your neighbors. We're right seven miles from our high school. So everybody knows that we hunt. Everybody knows kind of what we do. And if you follow our page at all, people locally know probably they know what farm we're hunting and could probably, since a lot of our buddies have hunted with us over the years, they all probably all could watch the videos and know exactly where we're hunting on the farm. And so you run that risk when you're hunting in the hometown. And uh, for us, um, we posted a picture of him once or twice in the summer. And it was like, it, it caused, I couldn't go into a convenience store or a, uh, for some reason we went to a high school basketball game that year. And I don't even remember why. Somebody was being well, on honored we were, or something this was after you posted the video of the mess yes you posted the video of the mess and we went we were hunting or something and they had a like a fish fry like a benefit fish fry and I'm like well let's go that's up right that's right yep they and had we a, walked in the door we walked in the door and it was like we got questioned like we were getting lined up and interrogated with uh with questions on how big the deer was, if we'd had any more pictures of him since the mess, how big we thought he was, what part of the farm was he on, is that right down there, how close is that to the gravel road? I mean, it was like so many questions that it felt like we had a little bit, like we had some stalkers going on. And when that happened, it was like, we've messed up. We've talked about this deer too much, which we hadn't talked about him much at all, but we'd let the cat out of the bag. So we just shut everything down. We didn't talk about him anymore. We didn't show pictures of him anymore. That's where I feel a little bit, I guess, uh, leaving our listeners right now that are listening to this in the dark because we didn't share anything about donuts, hardly at all, because it was like, we're not going to talk about him until he's dead. And he may not die at the hands of us, but he'll die, and then we'll talk about it. Me, you, and Matt kind of ended up, we had like a, almost a talk, like, all right, no more. We talked to no one about him we're not telling anything it's we're done with it it's all quiet now yep like we can't tell anybody uh-huh because you know and and even then i had friends who i trust that would text me even this summer has he showed yet every week has he showed yet any pictures of the big guy yet where's donuts is he back is he back is he back it's like i don't have and i think a lot of them thought i was lying i was like i haven't seen him they're like for real I'm like, I promise you, I'm not going to lie to you. I haven't seen the deer. He's not here. He's not alive. Something happened. And so we'll jump back to the fall, but I'll say that he lived through the fall of 2019. He showed up on our cuttyback cameras in February, late February, with one antler. Or he had both antlers. An hour and a half later, he had one antler. We knew it was close. You went down, found the antler, and a couple of weeks later, we burned off the whole unit that we felt like he was living in, and uh, you found the other side. So Chad actually found both sides of this of this buck, and we put a tape on it. So uh, we found him as a three-year-old, found him as a four-year-old, found him as a five-and-a-half-year-old, and we found both sides when he was five-and-a-half, thankfully. And he's been pretty symmetrical. So at three and a half and four and a half, we can say that, yeah, give or take a few inches, but that's about ballpark. And so 
we have him at a eight pointer, and I love this. I love this buck so much because he makes me second guess everything else that I've heard in the hunting industry about eight point bucks. Once an eight point, always an eight point. Yeah, there's probably a chance that they they are, but I don't think you can rule it out. I think it's a lot like trying to understand a looking at somebody who's in their teenage years and trying to predict where they're going to be when they're 60 years old. It's unfair to the teenage boy, and it's unfair to the deer to say we know who they're going to be at three and a half, or we know who they're going to be at five and a half by looking at them when they're three and a half. And I I I fully respect the guys in Southern Iowa and Iowa now that say we're shooting them at five and a half or even six and a half because we don't really know who they're going to be at three and a half and four and a half. That's that takes a lot of commitment to shoot upper age class bucks. We did it <laughs> because we just didn't get him killed at three and a half or four and a half. And he made it to five and a half. And he made a monstrous jump. So at three and a half, give or take a few inches, he was a hundred and five inches as an eight pointer. I think there's people almost even in Pennsylvania that like to say that now nah, Pennsylvania's different. I guarantee you there's three-and-a-half-year-old bucks that live in Pennsylvania that are better than 105 inches. And Donuts was a 105-ish-inch eight-pointer at three-and-a-half. At four-and-a-half, he was 138 inches as an eight-pointer. And then at five-and-a-half, he blew up and was 192-and-change-inch 11-pointer, I think, or 13-pointer. A mainframe 10. So he went from an 8-pointer at 3.5, 8-pointer at 4.5, to a mainframe 10-pointer with stickers at 5.5. I guess he was a mainframe 11 with double. Yes, something like that. So how do you know it's the same deer? He had the same range. He was the same symmetrical shape. If and and I'll post a picture. I don't think I'll post a picture of all three years, but uh, maybe I'll post. Yeah, no, it's not as attractive to post the shed antler pictures. But I can just assure you, we are ninety nine point nine percent sure that it's the same buck. Deer of that size, even at three at one hundred and thirty eight, don't go through unnoticed. Like we notice them, we notice their range, and then when a deer shows up at the exact same camera location almost to the date of the year previously, and then lived through the exact same range, did the exact same stuff in the fall, um, that's a pretty good chance that that's the same deer. So he was 105 inches, 138 inches, 193 inches. If that doesn't tell you that we don't know our deer at three and a half, I don't know what to tell you. I feel like Donuts is a great example for ourselves as well as our listeners to say, you know, it's okay to shoot a deer at three and a half, but if you have the ability to let deer get older and you want to shoot a Boone and Crockett buck and you have the acreage to do it, stop shooting them when they're three and a half. Probably stop shooting them when they're four and a half. Let them get to five and a half to see who they turn into. Um, this deer made me a, you know, I'm not, we've got clients all over the country now and like clients like Greg Glessinger who target older age class bucks. I totally get like, okay, five and a half, that's like the bare bottom. Like if you really want to know who a deer is and see what he's going to turn into, got to get him to five and a half. And Donuts did that for us and really opened our eyes of not just the potential of the of, of what a deer could do, but just the importance of habitat restoration and managing a farm on large scale. Timber thinning, burning, TSI, invasive species control, and then down that list is food plots. Food plots was really the hunting strategy for donuts. It was not the, let's put inches on his head. There was no mineral. There was, uh, ironically, there was no trapping during that time span. And so no trapping, no mineral, no feeders other than the rice bran dumped out in coffee can sized piles. Um, and only about six acres of food plots. So that deer got big first off because he got old. Second off, probably genetics. Third, because of nutrition, and that came from the uh, from the native variety, because a big part of his core area was in an area that had been logged. He went from very little 
grows native brows to a flush of native brows. Absolutely. And I think that's something that everybody should be focused on. It'll be a big part. Even more of our message in the future will be the importance of native brows because I I don't know. I'll say this as humbly as I can is because I have no doubt in my mind that we're going to grow another deer like donuts. Um, I have no doubt in my mind that when we get even more involved in the habitat management and doing stuff that we're going to have more and more Boone and Crockett bucks. I'm not even, that's why I'm not even upset that donuts went MIA. So I should share that story. Um, we found his last shed at the beginning of April or late March and he never showed back up in June, which he had done three years in a row. When he didn't show up in June, we got a little worried. Didn't show up in July, got a little worried. By December, no show. I'm not even, I, I, I have very little hope that that deer is still alive. He likely died without antlers on his head in the spring, um, which is unfortunate, but nature is brutal, a brutal beast. And so we'll grow more. And, and that's what, you know, we've both had multiple people ask us, like, are you guys upset? I mean, are, are you? I bet you're really upset that the deer hadn't shown back up. It's like, well, here's the deal. We've only done a, a drop in the bucket on yeah. the habitat work on this place. And that deer showed up. What's going to happen when we're rolling on the habitat work? That's right. When that riparian area gets restored, when the glades get restored, when the woodlands are restored, when there's native vegetation everywhere, when there's savannas, when the south slopes are cut out and there's just food everywhere and our food plots are, are, are at peak performance and have adequate soil amendments and are, are really performing well and they've got great diversity and there's food year-round in our food plots and food year-round in the other acreage, uh, I have no doubt we're going to grow more deer that are, uh, that are Boone and Crockett size. No, not a doubt in my mind. And that's where well, and- I'm like... And I say this humbly is we're doing things at home that a lot of people move to good areas that are already kind of getting it. So we're not packing our bags and moving to Iowa to say, okay, there's big bucks everywhere. We're just doing it right here at home on our own ground. We figured it out how to do it here. And I think that I there there are Boone and Crockett deer that get killed in the Ozarks. They're few and far between. There's not nearly as many of them in southern Missouri as there are in northern Missouri. Um, and they're very random. There's not really people doing it on a consistent basis. Um, and I think that's because people aren't doing the same level of habitat restoration that we're doing and will continue to do and do much more. And if I'm being honest with you guys, I would say that that the fam- that this whole home place, the family farm area... Um, I'd say that we've done about less than 25% of the overall habitat that uh, habitat restoration that we have planned. That's, that, that should make your eyebrows raise, the fact that we grew a 193 and we've done less than 25% of the habitat management that we want to do and have planned to do in the next five years. How many times have you and I talked and been like, we've got to get this north end, we've got to get more of this stuff cut we've got too many too many acres too many hundreds of acres of closed canopy timber that are offering them very little right now that's right that's right like we've got to get that done we've got to get that done for sure have to and we will um in fact you know my wife and i are talking about hopefully moving to the family farm which will open up the door for a lot of work to be able to get done uh, if I'm living down there and not an hour and 10 minutes away. And so, you know, donuts, I think, is the, as I've told some people, we're not going to spend five years from now talking about donuts. We're not going to be 10 years, 10 years from now talking about donuts. Because yeah. he's like the glimmer of hope, the little, like, the 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 crumble to, like, tease us into, whoa, you know, this is, we've done very little and we've seen a world-class buck. Imagine when we do a whole lot, what kind of bucks we're going to see. Like, we're, we're, I couldn't be more excited about the future. No. And he's, he's that deer to reinforce 
like you're doing the right thing. Yeah. You're 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 making you're you're moving in the right direction. Yeah. We've been we've been talking about native plants before they were cool. Yep. And it's like, oh yeah. Yep. We're 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 moving in the right direction. We're, something big's going to happen here. That's right. That's right. And I think that that's something that um it'll be it'll be very cool for us to highlight have some field days there in the future um or workshops there in the future of of where guys can come and see and go okay here's a here's a farm you know when I wanted to say it but I wasn't quite ready but when we did our podcast talking about purchasing the farm we talked about this is a working farm I had the question because I, I told people this: the farm is going to pay for itself. And I had a couple people email me in, or quite a few people actually emailed, called in, uh, that said, "How how are you going to make that happen?" It's like we're going to cut trees, buy cows, sell cows, and that's the payment. Um, almost every single year, we'll sell enough calves to pay for the farm, unless cattle prices absolutely plummet. At the same time, that's not our only form of income. Um, we've got other ways that like we, we may end up selling hay or we may end up, um, doing some workshops here and making some money on that form. But at the end of the day for people listening is there's enough timber value and we bought the farm at a good enough price because we're in the Ozarks. We can buy ground for less than $2,000 an acre and we can cut trees and pay, make a payment and, buy cows and then sell cows the next year or sell calves the next year to start making payments and make the annual payment with calf sales. And it should ultimately with our loan, Chad and I should not have to pull anything out of pocket to pay for this farm. And if it's a farm that can grow Boone and Crockett bucks, pay for itself, have great timber, have great recreational uh, capabilities with our family. I mean, it's a, it's a, a dream, and uh, I'm, I'm hopeful that we can take this template and this this uh, example and use it in more places in the United States for guys who thought that you can't grow giant deer because it's just all timber. Well, I'm here to tell you, and I'll tell you this again, but what you've heard over the last 20 years. 25 years in the outdoor realm about land management most likely you were lied to either because they through ignorance or sales pitches and i'm sorry to burst the bubble but that's just the way it is and um the the the, <laughs> the fact that we be, that we get told about food plots first told about f- supplements first told about feeders first told about um trapping first or or predator management like all these things that so much research has proven to not be true and it's time that we sit back and say you know i've taken in this content or this information for years and years and years and i've never really gotten anywhere uh time to shut it off fire up a chainsaw and go cut some junky timber and see what happens and if you if you want deer like donuts and you're, you're, you know, nobody goes to southern Missouri, or not many people go to southern Missouri to shoot giant deer. They just don't. And uh, I get, I, you should say too, though, it's one of those deals. You, you can't do all this and expect to all of a sudden you're going to be shooting a giant buck every year. Either. No, not at I all. I mean, and that's it's one of those two with a lot of these. Even before that, just passing deer and letting them get older. Yep. You're going to have some years where you don't kill a buck. Yep. I mean, you're going to have to be satisfied, especially if you're in southern Missouri. It takes years to build up Yep. A, a, a an age an, class. An age class. Yep. An age structure within your deer to where, I mean, we've been passing deer for, I mean, I've killed, if you count Doc two bucks on the farm in probably the last 15 years maybe yeah i'm trying to think here i've killed three bucks three bucks on the farm in the last what year did i kill in the last five years i've killed three bucks on the farm that's not bad and i wounded a good one this year too 
Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I mean, uh, so I should mention, too, if you never watched it, I did miss Donuts. Uh, very low light. I, th- I don't think... I don't think people even realize I, how low light it was until you watch I, the footage. I should say too, they didn't even get to watch I Miss Donuts as well. Yeah. Yours was <laughs> we a didn't little even different. Talk about that one. Mine was so low light, you know, I couldn't really see them with pins real well, and I shot right under him. And then late season you and Matt had a miscommunication, I guess, trying to well, shoot and film out of the same window. Uh, uh one of the disaster. vertical a don't vertical start. redneck window at last light and you were drawn back ready to shoot and then you looked and Matt was the viewfinder was between your string and the and the and the riser um well things things fell apart from the start because we were already packed up and getting out of there yeah because you were going to hunt the next night and I gave it one last look before I opened the window and he was there yep yeah and so you wrecked my season um, it was throwing stuff together, trying to get my bow around, trying to get everything in, and finally got around there. And then I drew and was getting ready to shoot, and I looked down in the viewfinders between my string and my bow. Mm-hmm. And, and so didn't you, you to, ask Matt for a range or something because your range finder was already put up? I couldn't up. get to my range finder. Yeah. Yeah. It was it was a disaster. Yep. And then we also saw him later or earlier in muzzleloader season – at the other end of the field, and he did some funky stuff, and we didn't get him killed in. So we had three encounters with a 192-inch buck and, and never get him killed. And ultimately, we gave him, as I heard Mark Dury say when I used to work up there, the kiss of death. And so um, he ended up dying at someone else's hands or, or natural causes, and uh, we didn't get him killed. So, uh, But we found his sheds, and uh, they're ginormous for us, and I mean, a 193-inch buck is pretty big almost anywhere in the country. And, uh, oh, yeah. So it's exciting times for us. You know, part two of the purchasing the farm is a story of donuts because they kind of go hand in hand. And, and the fact that, man, we're doing some really cool stuff and we're just getting started. I mean, we really haven't even gotten started. And there's deer showing some amazing, a, amazing a things of, right now. A lot of chainsaw work. Yeah. Fix, that we're waiting on yep. cost share approval. Yep. Yep. So anyway, um, hopefully you guys uh, enjoyed it. And I hope most of all you guys are inspired to know that just because you're in a part of the country that's very poor, uh, poor habitat, you don't have giant deer, you don't have many big deer, um, don't get discouraged because there's probably something lacking in the habitat, something lacking in your hunting strategy. Um, and I, and I totally think that you can grow big deer almost anywhere in the country. Unlike what we have been told to believe that they really only come out of crop country. Um, and so I, I hope everybody's inspired to start trying to restore native habitat and, uh, and hopefully you'll be back next week to hear more talks about, uh, wild turkeys and who knows what, what we'll have next week. So Chad, appreciate you coming back on guys. We'll talk to you next week. (laughs) 